the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Jesse Gestand. He's the host of Way of Grace, a pastor and a community leader. He's a teacher and an inspiration. He's Lifeline's own Jesse Gestand. Yes, indeed. And I am in the house with you. Yours truly, Jesse Gestand. The number here, one 367 one on this wonderful and gorgeous Monday afternoon. Happens to be May 21st, 2018. And the weather is great and vitamin D is everywhere in the air. And I'm happy to be with you. And if you want to talk, it's been two weeks. I was out last week um, taking care of some business, but back in the house um, for this wonderful two-hour period. Again, this is the Monday edition of Lifeline. The number to reach me, one 367 We get to do what Americans uh, have the right and privilege and honor and responsibility of doing with one of our coveted uh, constitutional rights. And that is to talk about all things God, all things good, all things necessary and right. So with no further ado... Uh, thank you for your time. And again, glad to have you with us. I'm, I'm, I'm always happy on Mondays, largely happy on Mondays, because Monday is post-Sunday. And I let you know that all the time. Monday is post-Sunday. And Sunday is a day to be celebrated and thankful for. God gives it to us that we might gather around him and honor him for the work that he has done in our lives And then we get to go out and do missionary work on Monday through Saturday again. Your host, Jesse Gistan, keeping you company for the next two hours. Um, How do we go about this? Well, as a rule, I lay down um, some, some basic topics for us to discuss. And right now I'm working through an article while I am talking with you, um, That's kind of disturbing, and I do want to present it to you while at the same time preparing you for some words, some pros, some comments by our friend J.C. Ryle, as I have chosen to do in terms of um, bringing a point of edification into your life. Um, You know we are believers, and we have a lot of uh, folks who are listening who are not necessarily believers as well, but um, we are glad to have you in the house with us. J.C. Riles, one of the uh, historic theologians who've given us a down-to-earth Christocentric theology, volume of theology, uh, makes the following observation, and I want you to think about it as we prepare to enter into conversation and dialogue. He says, abide in me, says Jesus, cling to me, stick fast to me, live the life of close and intimate communion with me. Get nearer to me, roll every burden on me. That's literally what it means in the book of Psalms, chapter um, 32, Psalms 32, Psalm 35. He says, cast your whole weight on me 
and never let go your hold on me for a moment. Be as it were rooted and planted in me. Do this and I will never fail you and I will never uh, and you will ever abide with me. Good words. What is J.C. Ryle saying? He's saying that you and I must make the Lord Jesus the essence and substance and necessity of our life. Abide in me, says Christ. Stick fast to me. Live the life of close, intimate communion with me. We've been talking about this at Grace over the last several weeks under the rubric and doctrinal concept of what? Forgiveness of sins, which is God's framework and basis by which we can actually have a vital vibrant, dynamic walk with God while he's conforming us to his image. By the way, him being perfect, we are perfect in Christ, but we are now in process. We are not perfect yet, but we are renewed and being renewed. And what does God want to do with us in the process of being renewed? Walk ever closer with him, ever closer with him. Here's another comment by Mr. Riles as well. In Christ alone, God's rich Provision of salvation for sinners is treasured up. We believe that. That's Colossians chapter 1, um, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. In him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. By Christ alone, God's abundant mercies come down from heaven to earth. That's true. Everything that God has for us, he gives to us in the person of Christ and by the power of his spirit. Christ's blood alone can cleanse us. Christ's righteousness alone can cleanse us. Christ's merit alone can give us a title to heaven, Jew and Gentile, learned and unlearned, king and poor men, all alike must either be saved by the Lord Jesus Christ or be lost forever. One of the reasons why Mr. J.C. Riles is so celebrated is because He was unashamedly committed to the sufficiency of Jesus Christ for the believer, particularly in a day in England where uh, formalism of religion was so dominant. In our era, I don't know if it's formalism, but I certainly do know that there is a lull around and acknowledging and celebrating the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. I really do know that we are definitely in a low period around the world and certainly here in America um, where Christ is really not the richest of the believer. We might say it in words, but it doesn't manifest itself in the passions of the heart um, or in the purpose of our lives or in the um, service of our time. We really are committed to what we are doing in our own lives and world And Jesus is just kind of like a, what, kind of like fire insurance to heaven. That's kind of what he is today in our culture. And uh, we really do need to um, ask God to put a fire under our hearts to drive us towards a radical look to Christ and a radical commitment to him so that all that God has for us can be revealed to us, in us, and manifest through our lives. If you are experiencing lack in any aspect of your life. That's where it is. You remember what our master said in John 15, without me, you can do nothing. And I think a lot of Christians fail to realize that. And so they live the abundant carnal life, not the abundant Christian life, the abundant carnal life. It is also ACL, but it's the abundant carnal life and not the abundant Christian life. And that is a radical distinction that we need to, uh, we really do need to think through. How wonderful 
is the forgiveness of sins. How wonderful is it to be justified freely by his grace? How wonderful it is to be reconciled to God the Father through God the Son and by the power of the Spirit of God be renewed in our mind and be transformed uh, by regeneration so that we actually have a vital communion with him? This should be the celebratory character and attribute of all believers everywhere who understand it. When you have Christ, you really have prospered. So I've got three lines open, one 888 one Be glad to hear from you if you want to call in and chat with yours truly um, by the grace of God. Really uh, would love to hear from you. Um, I'm thinking about something. I was thinking about actually the marriage of um, Harry and uh, Meghan, <laughs> Prince Harold and Meghan uh, Markle, um, and how the whole week has been basically dominated by a narrative in the media that was really watching the whole process of the wedding. I don't know if you saw it or if you heard it or if you uh, kept track with it, but I did. I really did appreciate um, how they gave real due respect to the distinction between, uh, you know, Megan and, and, and Harry. Um, I don't know any other way to call him, but Harry, his brothers is William. And, you know, I'm glad to, to know that they are a part of our, our present culture and world as dignitaries in Britain uh, and as a royal family. I mean, uh, I would say that uh, Will and Kate were pretty open and we uh, we were interested in them quite a bit. We were. But they actually took on a more uh, normative route of uh, royal family marriages and, and weddings and, and celebration and all that. But here we come across a kind of... Um, oddball couple, right? Um, Harry is your young rebel who uh, finally, after doing all of his fundamental royal duties of becoming an adult, going to the, into the military, coming out with honors, now he's settling down. And he's had a number of girlfriends, and the brother knows how to party. And in fact, he actually knows how to dance. I love it. <laughs> and somehow, I guess the whole point was that a blind date fortuned him upon Miss Megan Markle. And I knew nothing about her. I, once I saw a picture of her, I said, she is very beautiful. And uh, so he was uh, he was very much fortunate in that regard. And then as one goes on to listen to the story, we come to find out that she's an American. Um, you know, there you go. If that it does not cross the Atlantic and, and build a bridge between, um, you know, the uh, kissing cousins of Britain and America, I don't know what does for the royal family to engage in their uh, son, their prince, the possibilities third to the throne of um, of marrying an American. I don't I don't you know, I, I don't know. I don't know anything bad about that. What I also was intrigued about was the fact that Meghan Markle was, uh, you know, she's part white and part black. Now, we are fairly used to that right about now in a lot of spheres in our world, right? In politics, President Obama is black and white or white and black, however way you want to put it, white mom, black dad, right? A lot of controversy around that because our country is still so dominated by a skewed uh, vision and understanding of race. Um, But here's uh, this beautiful Meghan Markle, who once the media started going into her history 
apart from the barbaric uh, Facebook and social media in the dark world where people hide behind a screen and then, you know, um, shout out expletives and, and, and vile and vulgar comments simply because you can't grab them around the neck and, um, and, and you know, give them remunerations for the, their distorted facts which is very much why I don't get involved on Facebook and all of that other stuff anyway. Uh, besides that, the media at large really did do justice with Megan and her background. Um, her background obviously was one of a checkered past, but at the same time, the young lady herself chose to, with the, the blessing of her dad, who seems to be doing well for himself, along with her sister, even though mom and dad divorced um, that's no real stigma in our world today. Um, Megan, being um, uh, fairly well-to-do in terms of her education, was unique. It was privileged. And she made it into Hollywood in her early days. And, uh, you know, I guess she struggled for about 10 years, she said, in her own words. And finally, she made it on to uh, some of your more popular uh, television sh shows. I forget. It's called Suits or something. Um, anyhow... Uh, over time, um, she became fairly successful. And then she meets Harry on a date. And uh, and all of a sudden, the world is talking about her and him from the uh, from November of last year up to the present time. They got married on Saturday, by the way. And I was reading through some articles on that and just fascinated about how much data has been given to them. And one of the uh, pieces of information I'll share with you is because here you have this man. Harry, who happens to be uh, royalty uh, for a long time now, in Britain, no less. And, of course, you've got royalty all over the world in different forms and shapes, even in our lauded mother country, Africa. You've got kings and queens going back to the days of Egypt, going way, way, way back to the days of before even Abraham. You guys know that. Just thousands and thousands of years, somewhere around 10,000 years at least, Um and so the question is, who footed the bill? Because as a rule, the bride's family normally pays for the wedding expenses. But did you know the royal family picked up the bill this time for Meghan and Harry? Yep. Um, as some said, as was the case with the wedding of the Duke of Duchess of Cambridge, the royal family will pay for the core aspects of the wedding, such as the church service, the associated music, flowers, decorations, and the reception afterwards. Um, reads one statement from the Kensington Palace, and I thought that was so uh, professional and so cordial and so right of the royal family. And then as I was going through watching it, I don't know if you did. I would love to hear from you if you did, because I, I, I just think that this is a piece of 21st century data that we ought to know, that um, there was a lot of cooperation taking place between, um, uh, you know, the royal family and Megan. Uh, it seems like uh, the queen mother which would be the grandmother of uh, of Harry, uh, took a real liking to Megan. And Megan, Megan seems to be able to fit in and work with the family really well. And, and uh, you know, all of this kind of undercurrent of um, stepchild behavior that largely would go on in a royal family having to take in to their royal family a misfit from the ghetto, um, none of that was at all featured or um, expressed by the media. And for that, you know what I'm thinking, you guys? I'm thinking that um, our world is getting better in some ways in understanding real substantial 
commonalities in our human makeup, that the delusion of race, and it's a delusion that has dominated our culture since the Brits started it some 500 years ago uh, as a race. I mean, slavery had gone way back before then, as you know, but the Brits started this whole thing of whites and blacks and, and other so that they could dominate the trade and make more money. This is certainly the fact. And it was the Brits who, having started this and really ramped it up, who also really curtailed it and ended it even before America did. If you do your research, uh, you know, as much as we are supposedly a Protestant country by birth um, and Britain a Catholic country by name, uh, they started this thing and then they sought quickly to end it, you know. Uh, lots of uh, Christians engaged in the overthrow of this barbaric policy of slavery. And finally, it made it to our shores, did it not? Finally, it made it to our shores um, just a couple of hundred years ago, but we're struggling, still struggling through the uh, implications of it. Well, what does Megan and Harry do for us? Well, it reminds me of what we've been learning in our women's uh, WTC class, how that God can take a Boaz, a princely uh, lineage of the Judite nation, uh, poised and purposed to be the perpetuation of the seed of God, that is Christ, and attach him to a beautiful Moabite woman called Ruth and demonstrate the glory of the gospel, which is a gospel of all nations and has been all the time. As I've always said, a true Jew is not ethnic. A true Jew has always been one whom God has called, whom God has graced, whom God has saved, who walks with God by faith, who looks to Christ as their hope, as was the case with Abraham. He was not a Jew. Abraham was a Gentile, as the Bible clearly says, and Ruth was a Gentile, and Rahab was a Gentile, and and on and on, Gentiles in and all out throughout the lineage of our Savior. And then Paul finally taught us in Romans 2, a true Jew is one inwardly. And then he said again in Ephesians chapter 2, God has broken down the middle wall of partition by Christ so that the true Israel of God is made up of Jews and Gentiles. One day we'll get that, and until then... Until then, we will only superficially celebrate the uh, coming together of Ruth and Boaz, as well as Megan and Harry, superficially that is, and we'll continue having wars in the name of distinct ethnic groups, distinct races, and killing each other, when in fact we all come from one blood, one man, his name is Adam, and we are all bearing the same stamp of Adam, we are sinners, And our only hope is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why I like the story of Megan and Harry. They seem real cool. I hope that they are believers. I hope they know the grace of God. And I hope that their life abounds with good works, abounds with tokens of the Savior. I hope somewhere in the mix, the Savior comes out in them and in their commentary and in their charitable works, which they are committed to do. And I hope they become a model for those of us who are of lesser economic status. Although if you are a believer in Christ, as I'm I, you are royal family of the highest order. Say amen. In any event, I've got to take a break. When I come back to to you after the break, we're going to talk about a prosperity gospel problem. A prosperity gospel problem. And, of course, I'll take your phone calls, one 367 Love to hear, about, hear from you about whatever might be 
on your mind worthy of discussing on the Monday edition of Lifeline. I will be right back. And now back to Lifeline with Jesse Gistand. All right, we're back. Three lines are open. I need you to call in. If you want to talk, one 367 You know I can talk for the next hour and a half, but I'd love to hear from you. one 367 Before I go to a topic that I do want us to meditate on, and that is the damnable nature of prosperity preaching and its awful impact in poor countries like Africa. I did want to uh, say, I don't know if you did see the wedding of Harry and Meghan, but they had a wonderful carriage ride throughout the royal city. I don't know if you saw it, but it was beautiful. Uh, The day was pristine. The sun was out. Um, Hundreds of thousands of people donned the sidewalks, and their carriage ride was, I, I, I think, again, it was intimate, but it was epic because I had never really personally tracked with a royal wedding of that kind. Of course, we've seen them on the news, past ones, even again of Will and Kate and and their dad and, um, you know, uh, Princess Diana and the other lady that he ultimately married. You know, that was kind of a shambles marriage. But nothing like this. This was the cameras were very close. The images were clear. And both Harry and Meghan were so friendly to the audience. Um... That, again, it gave you gave you a real good feeling about uh, what I would call authenticity. So I'm going to make the gospel um, sort of point. While you call, by the way, one 888 with your questions or your comments or observations. Um, if Harry and Meghan um, represent believers in their, uh, in their, their status as royal children— of the kingdom, and then then Harry and Meghan represent you and I, right? Um, and if that's the case, um, their visible public witness um, should speak to us of yeah, real, authentic, and genuine love, real and authentic and genuine witness, real and authentic and genuine uh, communion with not only themselves and God, but with their community. And that's what I got. Um, I was watching Harry. He had on his military garb, which is a wonderful and apropos uh, image to uh, to bear in a wedding. Because in reality, if you're a believer in Christ, you are both in a wedding and a war. This is what we will be preaching up in our sacramental fellowship in July on the weekend of the 4th. It'll be fifth, sixth, and seventh um, armor up um, in honor of the warfare. Um, believers are in a warfare, and yet believers are part of a wedding feast to come. So warfare and a wedding. So you see the bride gloriously arrayed in a wedding garment, and her train was some twenty feet long, um, if not longer. Beautiful, but Harry's in his military outfit, and, and and they come out, and again, he is so comfortable and so uh, casual in his behavior towards the audience. Uh, that what 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 kind of impact does that make for royal family, royal believers to be part of a kingdom and and to be open, honest, authentic, and engaging? That's what they were: open, honest, authentic, and engaging. Open, honest, authentic, and engaging. What does that make for the kingdom? It makes for the kingdom to have a real sense of rest in relationship 
between dignitaries and the common people. It actually lets the common people know that dignitaries and the common people are more common than they um, would be perceived to be. Now, how much more so would that be the case in any local church where the government is viewed as dignitary and then you have the lay people or our parishioners? Shouldn't there be a kind of authenticity, a kind of um, genuineness, a kind of uh, communion between the leadership and the people of this uh, royal uh, display? What do you think? One triple eight three six seven five three two nine. Does Christ engage his church with the kind of um, um, authenticity, genuineness, uh, and communion of presence, of power, of purpose, of passion, of providence um, that we saw a little clip of with, with Harry? And should that not be the case with all of us as believers, even in our own world? The world we live in is a citizenship of some sort as well, and we should not be hid from them. We should be public and open with our love towards Christ. Ought we not to? So what do you think about it? one 888 right, we've come up against another break, but let me share with you two other verses. Two other verses from J.C. Riles, and then we will get into our topic on the other side of the break. Think about this. The heart that has really tasted the grace of Christ will instinctively hate sin. The heart that has really tasted the grace of Christ will instinctively hate sin. Here's another verse. Knowledge of the Bible never comes by intuition. Knowledge of the Bible never comes by intuition. It can only be obtained by diligent, regular, daily, attentive reading. Knowledge of the Bible never comes by intuition. Osmosis. You don't wake up and know your Bible. Here's the final one as we break. If you love Christ, never be ashamed to let others see it and know it. Speak for him. Witness for him. Live for him. Go, J.C. Riles. one 367 Ready to hear from you. one 367 Your host, Jesse Gistan, in the house with you on the Monday edition of Lifeline. We've got an hour and 30 minutes. We'll keep this going. I'll be right back. And now back to Lifeline with Jesse Gistand. All right, we're back. The time is 537 on the Monday edition of Lifeline. Good to be with you. I said I was going to read uh, an article and uh, jar your thoughts about how important it is for us to get the gospel right. Because I think in our country, we do um, have a tendency to play games with uh, knowing God and knowing what God's will is. And uh, I, I just want to share with you a pathetic but necessary article around that. And I'll do that after I take this phone call and talk with Sister Deb in Oakland. Uh, Deb, what's going on with you? How are you today? Well, I'm suffering, but I don't care. Okay. Because I won't always do that. Okay. Uh, so I was, what, you you just, I was doing cartwheels, uh, uh, not literally, but mm-hmm. I was really, really intrigued by Harry and Megan's story. Me I too. Think, I think that they uh, are a really wonderful couple, and I don't know if they're born again or not, 
but I I will pray for their salvation in case they are not. Right. And and I just I just really believe it's just it's just so wonderful to hear such positive things coming from a family that is is in the news, you know, and everybody knows. I agree. I I, I um did you get a chance to hear a lot about it or or did it come in bits and pieces for you? It came in bits and pieces. So until you came on air today, I didn't really know all that you know. Yeah, and and I know a whole lot more, and I, I just don't get a chance to really share it as much. I I kind of tracked well, with you, them back when. Favor and when you have an opportunity, would you share that with me privately? What's that? When you get an opportunity, would you share more with me privately? Um, um, um the 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 things that you all know that I don't know. I'm getting ready to share that now. I'm getting ready to tell everybody about it now. That's what I'm going to do. But uh, there will be someone talking with you. They've been trying to knock on your doors lately, and I don't know why there has been a disconnect. Is there a problem getting to you um, for people who want to um, who want to talk with you? Uh, no, not that I know of. Mm. I know that my my manager's been out of the office, and he won't be back in until um, Wednesday. But there's. They're they're doing a lot of reconstruction in my in my building. I think that's it because I know that we've had a listener or two who wanted to really talk with you and meet with you that hasn't been able to get through. Um, and they were I think I heard them saying something about um, uh, not being able to get uh, get through the gate there. And maybe that that was a kind Tell of them a, to keep trying because uh, it's just you know this area is is always. There's something always going on, but for sure, keep trying. For okay? sure, I will. I will definitely do that. But I do appreciate your um, calling in and, and and saying what I think we should have. You know, uh, the Brits are doing it. They they're having a very good conversation about both um, Britain and America and the collaboration between the two. Because Megan represents us, and of course Harry represents them, and uh, it's a good thing that the Brits and Americans have a a common bond on a level more than just war. And politics. I mean, it really is a beautiful story, Deb. Um, Megan is cool. She she is a really nice young lady, as um, as I can see it. And you know, the media are hound dogs. If they really wanted to shred you apart, they would find truth and error to talk about you, right? But they haven't. They haven't been able to do that with her, which means, you know, God protected her life as a little girl, a little nappy head black girl in the in the hood originally. And then, you know, he allowed her to kind of grow up and mature with her sister. And they went through a colloquial school. And then, you know, she decided a shot at um, acting after college and very smart young lady with um, a real good head on her shoulders. And even before she met uh, Prince Harry, she was already involved in charitable work like um, global missions and, uh, you know, food to the world and, you know, all of those missions that are really dealing with our really dire countries, um, largely Africa. But um, and I thought that was so well, because it's not like she's coming in and then has a hurry up. And well, I hope she's not doing it because she's trying to has a work mentality. Well, yeah, but here's the problem. Here's the thing. You and I don't have to waste a thought on that. Think about this. I agree with that assumption, but we don't have to waste a, a thought on that because first and foremost, and I, I'll be glad to hear anybody's call on this, um, good works that people do, um, whether their motives are right or not, bear its own fruit. Like, for instance, 
the poor kids in Africa who live in villages where the water is pathetic. It's, uh-huh. it's not even clear. It's filled with urine of animals and feces and everything else. And then they still have to drink it. Deb, my stomach turns over when I think about it. Yeah, right. I agree. And, and so, you know, Megan has been involved with these kind of programs of putting wells in, which is really uh, a trajectory for me over the next year. I really love her, you know, she, because I don't know if she's born again or not. Right. But I can tell you if she is, here's the thing. And I was just reading this today with J.C. Riles and he was saying good works will necessarily flow from God's grace when you have it. And so, right. right. And so um, the the thing that often we are worried about in our churches is this, Deb, a lot of people talking grace and not walking grace. Well, um, do me a favor, Jesse. If you ever hear me say anything that doesn't, uh, uh, doesn't do that, feel free to challenge me on it, okay? Yeah, well, you know, I'm, 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 my mama taught me well. I'm not going to challenge women publicly. I don't do that, <laughs> but I, I will, I will no, put any way you can. You I'll, know, I'll do a, a I'll do a kind and gentle corrective, sister. That's what I'll do. <laughs> <laughs> All right, listen, I'm gonna let you go. I'll talk to you later. I'm gonna try to make sure that that person who is really wanting to. Um, have some time with you. It's another young lady too. She's just uh, she listens to you on this program, um, trying to get through. I'm gonna see if that can get done. I think you're right though that all that construction stuff going on over there at the building there, because I see it from time to time when I pass by. It's always something going on around your street, girl. Always something going on. Anyhow, gotta let you go. I let's, I got a minute to go. So here's what I want to do. And I've got four lines open, by the way. One triple eight three six seven five three two nine. Do you have a gospel perspective on Megan and Harry, as I have shared with you? Do you have a gospel perspective? Say something. Glorify God. Uh, one of the things we're doing this year is we are um, honoring, are we not, all men? And I'm trying to practice that among you as the saints of God with Harry and Megan, because I know that too frequently, you know what we're doing all the time, tearing people down, uh, belittling people. Um, We always nitpick and find things wrong. Uh, That's a real problem too, biblically speaking. In fact, for Christ, it's even more hideous than uh, good works by, uh, I mean, by good good works in in order to get right with God. Um, The tongue is an unruly evil. We need to stop that. In any event, um, uh, give me a call one triple eight three six seven five three two nine. Did you were you fascinated by May, uh, by Megan and and Harry? Did you learn something redemptive from it? Does it teach you and some, you and I something about royalty and grace and communion and fellowship uh, with people who may not be as fortunate as us? I'd love to hear from you on that. But again, after I come back from the break, I promise you, what I'm going to do is talk to you about a horrible, horrible reality going on in Africa, largely Kenya, but Africa at large. You guys know AIDS has been around for several decades now, and one of the best kept secrets in America is that uh, it's still an epidemic in Africa, and people are dying by the millions there, even though we have really good drugs The pharmaceutical agencies don't want to give it away. That's a crime. But to add insult to injury, you've got wicked men and women over there preaching a gospel that God will heal you. If just come up to the line and let me lay hands on you and slay you in the spirit. And of course, for a hefty price, you can walk away whole. 
Nothing could be further from the truth. One triple eight three six seven five three two nine. That's why you have to be clear on the authentic gospel, the real gospel, the saving gospel, and know how God works. And know how God does not work. Love to hear from you. One triple eight three six seven five three two nine. I'll be right back. And now back to Lifeline with Jesse Gistand. And we're back. The time five fifty one on the Monday edition of Lifeline. The number one triple eight. Three six seven five three two nine one triple eight three six seven five three two nine. We will have one hour after this segment is over for us to continue our dialogue and conversation. If you want to chat with yours truly, um, Jesse Gistan. The friendship that battled the prosperity gospel to treat Africa's HIV crisis is the article that I'm reading by one Sarah Zilstra. And she's talking about a young man whose name is John Fielder, who uh, who couldn't have had a job anywhere else. I quote, he graduated uh, summa cum laude from the prestigious William College, then with honors from the elite Baylor College of Medicine. He followed with a residency in internal medicine at John Hopkins University, where he was named the top intern in his class. Fielder would have been. At the top of his profession in the United States, said Mark Gershon and his college roommate, who was doing just that, co-founding a successful peer-to-peer business learning community of top professionals. But instead of courting hospitals and universities for job offers, Fielder was booking a plane ticket to Kenya. After graduation, he'd, he'd, he'd... land at a mission hospital that didn't have enough staff or supplies for funding. Talk about good works. He'd work 10 to 12 hours a day, spend a year away from his fiance, and be on call in the intensive care unit for two years in a row without a substantial break. Fielder checks on a patient in Malawi. He'd work with a pharmacy that didn't keep inventory and start an HIV program with staff who weren't trained in HIV care. He'd do his continuing education, not with conferences in Boston or New York, but with old school textbooks and later with an internet connection online journal. Quote, he says, I once used an old textbook to mix (laughs) perishional uh, abdominal dialysis solutions for a patient whose kidney has shut down as a complication from pregnancy, he said. She survived. It goes on to say he'd face down the world's biggest health crisis, HIV and AIDS, at its epicenter. And he'd work full time in a hospital in Malawi while at the same time publishing more than a dozen articles and abstracts for medical journals, writing a textbook on how to deal with tuberculosis in HIV patients the leading killer of most AIDS patients in Africa and starting a foundation that would give away millions to other needy hospitals in Africa. Now the story goes on and I want you to hear it because it's so very important. The timing couldn't have been better. Fielder specialized in infectious diseases and Africa was racked with one of the worst HIV or AIDS death world uh, AIDS death worldwide would speak of in 2005 at about 2 million, nearly three quarters of them were in suburban Africa. In fact, I have a, a quote about suburban Africa. People in suburban Africa 
Sub-Saharan Africa, rather. Sub-Saharan Africa carried 24% of the world's disease burden. People in Sub-Saharan Africa carry 24% of the world's disease burden and 60% of the AIDS burden. 60%. Yet the region has just 3% of the world's health care workers. In other words, health care workers are not there. This is why... John is there. Mr. Fielder is there. He's there in a time of pandemic. The first strains of HIV originated in Cameroon. Uh, chimpanzees made the leap over to humans in, 19, in the 1920s. By the early 60s, about 2,000 people were probably infected by 1993, by the, uh, aided by the growth of sex trade and public railways. The numbers had shocked to 14 million, 9 million then, then lived in sub-Saharan Africa. By 2001, more than 20 million people south of the Saharan had AIDS. Fortunately, by then, pharmaceutical companies had invented antiviral drugs to manage the disease and prevent its spread. But only 8,000 sub-Saharan Africans had access to them. In Kajabi, Kenya, a doctor named Nate Smith was working in a massive hospital, a mission hospital rather, with a population somewhere between 8% and 15% HIV positive. Fielder wrote him a letter asking, <clears throat> can I come out? Smith didn't turn him down, but he, he also didn't have a chance to train him. A week or so after Fielder arrived, Smith returned to the United States leaving Fielder as the only hospital staff member who knew how to care for those HIV patients. It goes on to say, Kajabi Mission Hospital in Kenya, uh, the problem wasn't knowing what to do. Fielder had trained for this, but except accessing the right medicine was his issue. In 2000, the life-saving cocktail of antiviral drugs cost $10,000 per patient per year. In 2001, when generic companies began to offer them, the price dropped to $350. But that was still an impossible amount for the country when a third of the people survived on less than, watch this now, a dollar and 25 cents a day. Count your blessings. So Fielder used Gershon's donations to subsidize the cost of the drug, asking patients to pay only what they could afford. He chipped away at the epidemic as best he could, planning to leave after two years. But in 2004, just as Fielder, Fielder's two years were winding down, the president's emergency plan for AIDS relief, PEPFAR, Funds reached Kenya. We really believe God was calling us to stay longer because our hospitals didn't have anyone else to lead the PEPFAR program. So Fielder said we saw an opportunity and responsibility to be part of the upscale. So during his 2003 State of the Union address, President George H. Bush asked Congress for a work of mercy beyond all current international efforts to turn the tide against AIDS. Congress gave him a standing ovation, then gave him $15 billion for antiviral treatments in 15 countries, 13 of them sub-Saharan. Yay for President Bush. It goes on to say, however, during the early days of PEPFAR, we were under pressure to find patients with HIV and get them treated, Fielder said. You couldn't just wait down at the hospital, and here's the reason why. He said, because to walk into a hospital for sub-Saharan African patients and admit you have a virus that's killing you, almost 7% of your country 
is not an easy thing to do. Think of having to confess being a zombie. That was the equivalent because that's what they called you. You're risking social shame and isolation just for carrying the disease. And maybe you don't even know medical help is possible. Or worst of all, maybe your pastor told you not to go. Here's where it turns. Prosperity preachers. On Sunday in March 2001, 161 HIV-infected people went to hear Pastor John Nduati. He called them to the front of the church where they fell down like a row of dominoes. When the pastor proclaimed them healed, Nudanti isn't the only one offering spiritual healing. The African Charismatic Redeemed Christian Church of God tells its 2 million members that HIV is a demonic spirit that can be cast out. Have you heard that before, folks? A Nairobi pastor leads people through a public healing that includes burning their antiviral medications and paying the pastors a hefty fee. Have you heard that before? A Zimbabwean prophet promises to heal HIV through his satellite broadcast. And in South Africa, a prosperity preacher claims to heal church members of HIV by spraying, listen, insecticide on them. Gershon and Fielder were uh, with patients whose HIV treatments were subsidized by Gershon and a few others before PEPFAR says all of his patients are doing fine. The effects can be devastating. Not only does going off antiviral means patients aren't managing the disease, but it also puts them at risk of developing a resistance to the drug. We take it very serious, Fielder said. Prosperity gospel theology is not a small challenge in Africa. And, and I say this before I go to break because I've heard this over and over and over again, you guys, from missionaries whom I know in Africa, who I know in Uganda, whom I know in Kenya, who are faithful missionaries of the gospel of the grace of God in Christ, who know that this is a plague spreading through all the people. Now, here you are. You've got HIV. And you actually need help, medical help, from people who are believers who actually know how that God works through medicine. Have you figured that out, ladies and gentlemen, that God works through a medicine? Every now and then he'll work apart from it, but not much. Why? Because God has given us the earth as a resource for healing, including food when eaten right and the right way with the right reason. So Fielder and his staff, I go on to finish this article before I take a break. Fielder and his staff closely monitor whether patients are coming in for refills. And he tells those infected, God is working. He is healing you. Now, ladies and gentlemen, is that not true? When you are sick and you go to the doctor and you are being helped by a doctor who actually believes in God and realizes that God works through means and God largely works through means, does he not? God is working. God is healing you. These medicines came from somewhere and not from the devil. He backs that up with James 1.17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights. Do you believe that, child of God? But the best answer to prosperity preachers has been, watch this. This is what Fielder says he's recognized now in Africa. And I, I've been called to preach there recently. Hope, hopefully I'll get there in a couple years. Um, but there are many brothers there. Uganda, many brothers in Kenya, many brothers in different parts of Africa preaching the gospel. He says the best remedy for prosperity preachers 
is gospel preachers. I would agree. Listen to what he says as we close. Stumped, Fielder looked around at other treatment programs and networks of compression and international affiliated churches in the regions who were reaching out to infected patients. How were they pulling in those with HIV and keeping, keeping them engaged? The answer, community outreach and pastor involvement. The chair of Fielder's Hospital Board happened to be the leader of a regional pastor's network. So he invited 150 of them to a three-day training to learn about the basic biology of HIV, the medicine, and the importance of sticking to the treatment schedule. This training session was the most important initiative we ever undertook in the community. Fielder said, the pastors and churches responded wonderfully. Many referred patients sent six cases in their own cars, held support groups in their churches, and let prayer and Bible study in support groups. We went from 60 to 200 patients in one month, said Mwendi, one of the um, uh, helpers there. So the uh, whole point of what's going on in this article is not only that it is atrocious that we've got this kind of behavior going on, not only then, but even up to now. And the only real answer to it is knowledge and wisdom and understanding and humility and what Christ told his people to do. And that is to what? Go into all the world with the gospel. The real antidote to prosperity preaching is gospel preaching. Would you agree? All right, we're going to take another break at the end of this hour. one 888 if you want to call in on this topic or any other topic after the break. Be glad to chat with you then. Got some uh, news announcements to make. But uh, again, I'm going to take a break. When we come back, we'll continue with yours truly on the Monday edition of Lifeline. I'll be right back. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 